Test, test. All right. Let us continue church history because we have much to cover. And I'm a couple minutes late. How'd that happen? I'll blame it on someone else. Anybody else. Danny, it's your fault. Talking about hats and theology. Okay, well, let me open in prayer. Lord, thank you for our time. We're blessed to be here. It is always an encouragement to be with the saints as we study doctrine, as we study scripture. Bless our time here as we learn about big mistakes in church history and also the uh, the positive, the blessings. Let us learn from these things. Amen. We've been looking at the Crusades. This is a major focus in the Middle Ages. In fact, some reformers even kind of saw the Reformation as a, a new type of crusade. Of course, it, it is an actual crusade. The first few are actual crusades, soldiers marching to the Holy Land. But over time, crusade has such a following that the term gets used for just about anything. Uh, you even have Billy Graham in recent times, his Billy Graham crusade. It gets used as a spiritual term later in church history. But in the Middle Ages, the spiritual and the physical are closely connected. And remember, if you go on crusade, you can get all your sins forgiven. You get the plenary indulgence. The Pope instituted that in the first crusade. So a lot of people went. This crusade was very successful, both based on the number of folks who went and the different nobles who took their knights and went to fight hard for their own little slice of territory in the world so that they could become kings. Then the kings got involved in the second crusade. It was kind of a mess. Nothing major happened. We're up now to the third crusade. I'm going to go kind of quick. Uh, but the third and fourth are, are somewhat important. After that, it really just becomes silly and uh, unimportant as far as uh, a major crusade. The third crusade, we have a new Muslim ruler. So remember, the Muslims had taken over much of the Eastern Roman Empire. And that's why the Eastern Romans, the Byzantines, asked for help. They asked for Christians from the West to come to the east and fight the Muslims. The Byzantines were weak. Even though they had split somewhat theologically, they still saw themselves as Christian brothers. And so they said, come to the east, conquer the Holy Land for us. They came, they conquered, but they didn't give it back to the eastern emperor. They didn't give it back to the Byzantine Empire. So now they have pretty much, not all of what we would call modern-day Israel, but a large chunk of it. Jerusalem, Antioch, cities like that, and the territories around them. Well, the Muslims did not like losing that. So eventually there became a very powerful ruler named Saladin. And Saladin uh, was eventually the sole leader of the Muslims. And he ruled from Egypt. Uh, that was his major seat of power. And he started out as a general, but basically became the ultimate military leader for the Muslims in that area. 1187, uh, Jerusalem fell to Saladin and his army. So the crusaders who were now living in the land because they had conquered it and people were coming from France and coming from England to live there and start a society that was more Christian, Saladin came and he conquered Jerusalem. So this is a huge loss if you're a Christian in uh, Roman Catholic Church in the medieval Europe. You are very saddened because the holy city has once again been taken. And so every attempt after this is going to be a, an attempt to get Jerusalem back. Even Christopher Columbus wanted to sail to the Indies so he could make more money, make Europe wealthy again, and retake Jerusalem. You'll even find that in his writing. So this idea of retaking Jerusalem, going on crusade, becomes a huge issue in the West. And even today, uh, still continues in some sense. So the Third Crusade was an attempt originally to retake Jerusalem uh, for the kingdom of Jerusalem. And it's called the King's Crusade because we have two men who go on that crusade. Um, Frederick I was a third emperor or king. He, he wanted to go. He led the way. But on the way there, he, dr he drowned in the river. So, uh, you know, it was sort of like a, a tour of the Holy Land. Let's go down by horseback. He took the land route, crossed the river, drowned. His troops said, we have no reason to be here. They went back home to Germany or the Holy Roman Emperor Empire. So that leaves the King of England and the King of France, who were not necessarily best of friends. They were fighting over land in France, modern day France. And so uh, Richard I, King of England, was a younger man. He had been accomplished as a war general. He earned the nickname the Lionheart because he was so good at battle, because he 
went into the fray with his troops and he was lion hearted. He had the heart of a lion in battle. So he sold land to raise money. To go on crusade was a huge expense. Just when my family goes on vacation, that's a huge expense. Imagine you're taking all these troops. You've got horses. You've got animals to feed on. You've got food. You have to buy food along the way. It takes a lot of money to go on crusade. So these kings would have to raise money and they even sometimes would tax their citizens to go on crusade. The king would not agree to go unless the French king went. Because what happens if Richard goes, but the king of France doesn't go? He just left all of his territory in France open. See, the king of England owned basically half of France at this time through inheritance. And if he goes, well, the French king's just going to take his land. So they both have to go. And they both have to fight there. So the king of France was Philip Augustus at this time. Philip the August, the the golden king. They got into an argument when they got down there. And Philip said, well, I'm going home. You know, he was very childish. He said, you know, fine. You don't want to do what I want to do? I'm going home. So now Richard is there by himself. Here's uh, Richard the Lionheart and the one with the crown. And I think that's Philip Augustus and the blue there, if I recall. These are mostly paintings done much later uh, than their life. Now, a major battle happened in the Third Crusade, or right before it really, is the Battle of Hatton. At the Battle of Hatton, the Crusaders suffered a huge loss, and Saladin killed many of them. Um, he had drawn out the Crusader army led by the king of Jerusalem, Guy, or Guy, Guy if you're speaking French, and one of the leaders, Renald, uh, the Crusader army was drawn out near the Sea of Galilee. They got dehydrated. They got let off course. They didn't have any water. Saladin's army was just withdrawing, withdrawing, sort of tricking them into a trap. And then he showered them with arrows. It would burn their lungs with brush fires lit all around them. So their horses were thirsty. They were dehydrated. There's smoke in their eyes and lungs. And then here comes the Muslims. They are the Crusaders are then defeated. Reynald is beheaded. I think he was the Templar leader. King Guy is taken prisoner. And of course, the relic of the true cross is captured. Remember last week I talked about if you went into battle in the Middle Ages, you took along something like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You took along a relic. Relics were supposed to bless you. They were supposed to give you power. We saw even Hitler in World War II was looking for relics so he could get more and more power. Well, this relic was supposed to be a part of the cross. So every sliver of wood that was found, you can imagine, in Jerusalem or the Holy Land, people would say, look, it's the true cross. Let's put gold around it. And they would carry it out sometimes on a staff, sort of like the serpent in the wilderness with Moses. They would carry this out on a staff and say, here's the true cross. And that's supposed to ensure they win the battle. Unfortunately, they did not win. We have them conquered, beheaded, all the Templars killed. So here's a, a painting of, of Saladin killing the Crusaders, especially the Templar knights, the ones with the cross on them, were instantly killed. He could not afford to have them continue living. Um, it was a, a gruesome affair. This battle really caused a, a defeat with the Crusaders living in the land. So now this is why the, the Third Crusade comes into being. The biggest battle in the Third Crusade is the Battle of Acre. The Crusaders do eventually take Acre, and that becomes the new capital of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which is interesting. They don't have Jerusalem. It's still the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but they're rolling from Acre. Why? Because the idea is they're going to get Jerusalem back. They need to get Jerusalem back. So King Richard comes. He marches on Jerusalem, but it's too much trouble. He never really sacks it. He doesn't siege it. He says, you know what? i got to get back home. Philip Augustus is back in France. He's going to take my land. What the Crusaders often found after the first Crusade is you're just marching around trying to siege places. It's a hot desert. Who wants to be there? Richard says, let's just make a treaty. So he's known for his negotiating skills. Let's make a treaty with Saladin to restore the access for the pilgrims. That's what started this whole mess. Christians couldn't go to Jerusalem. The Muslims were keeping them from that. That's why the first Crusade really started. So let's make a treaty. Christians can come to Jerusalem, they can see the holy sites, and then Richard went back home. So even though he's the lion-hearted, it's not really for anything he did while he was in uh, on the crusade. But I, I do hear that Muslims still scare their children by saying, Richard the lion-hearted will get you if you don't go to sleep, if you're not good. 
and he's still feared. He's like the boogeyman to Muslims. He was a very feared general. And when he did fight, you knew you were going up against a huge opponent. And so they feared him, but he couldn't defeat Saladin. So the results of the Third Crusade, the kingdom of Jerusalem is still there. They still have a city, Acre. That's the chief city now. Saladin almost had complete victory, but he lost some of what he had won, and, and it's back and forth in certain territories in the Holy Land. He made concessions regarding Jerusalem. He wanted this war to end. And then the Third Crusade did stop Saladin from wiping out all Christians in the area, but he, they did not get Jerusalem. Of course, he went back home and married Robin Hood and made Marion. I told you all that last week. Nobody got it. Maybe the picture brings back a memory. There he is, Richard the Lionheart. You didn't know he was alive during the time of Robin Hood. The Fourth Crusade. Uh, this one's famous. The Fourth Crusade. Uh, because it doesn't go to the Holy Land, it doesn't end in the Holy Land. And it's Christians essentially crusading against Christians. Pope Innocent III says, We don't have Jerusalem. We need our lands back. So he calls for crusade. And of course, by now, it's time to gain wealth. That You can gain fame. And you can get your sins forgiven just by going and fighting and killing Muslims in the Holy Land. So the idea was to sail across the Mediterranean and even go to Egypt first. Because that's the seat of power for the Muslims. They always come up from Egypt at this time. Take back lands in the Holy Land. So go to Egypt first. Take out the leader or the army there. And then the Holy Land is wide open. But they had no money. They had no money for the fleet that they hired to take them. So they got on the ship, and then along the way, the Genoese uh, Italian ships decided, hey, we might not get our money. You guys need to pay us now. And so they sidetracked it to Constantinople. That's where the ships let off the soldiers. And the Byzantine emperor at that time was being deposed, Alexius Angelus. And he said, look, if you help me, I will give you money. If you restore my father to power. And the crusader said, yeah, we need money. We got to get to the Holy Land. Let's have some money. We'll just fight for you. Help you with this little squabble. And we'll move on. Well, to make a long story short, there's the Pope Innocent there. It's kind of scary looking. And then, of course, there's Alexius on the left. By this time... This is kind of what they thought Jesus should look like, even though he doesn't look like the actual Jesus, of course, who looked like a Jewish person of the first century. Yeah, this isn't the Muslim Jesus. This isn't the uh, Mormon Jesus either. Blonde hair, blue eyes. That comes much later in history. This is supposed to be, what, the Byzantines. He looks very Greek, very Byzantine. Anyway, Alexis had this painting done. It's supposed to resemble him. And then uh, there's the Pope there. So these are the two main folks who called for the crusaders, to do something. Uh, the crusaders expected to be welcomed when they returned to the city with Alexius, but the people didn't like Alexius, and so they were resisted and openly scorned. Who are these crusaders, these Latins, these folks from the West, these Christians? So this political coup it meant eventually uh, that the crusaders were hired to fight for this usurper, but when that man was killed, the new emperor who suddenly took over refused to pay the crusaders. So now we've got a huge army, very angry men with weapons and no money that's owed to them. So what do you think they're going to do? They're going to sit there and starve? They're going to take off to the Holy Land and starve along the way and get defeated? No, they're going to retaliate. And so they besiege Constantinople, a great city of the Eastern Empire, the Rome of the East. The Pope heard about this and he was so upset. He said, that's, that's condemnation. You're sinning. Do not attack the city. But they didn't care. They wanted food. They wanted money. They wanted to be paid. So on April 12, 1204, the Crusaders took the city. They destroyed portions of it. And this really split east from west. You already had a theological split. But the average person, it was no big deal, right? We live in the east and, and we're Christians. They would say, you live in the West and you're Christians. You do it your way. I know some of our patriarchs and popes had a disagreement. But this really splits. You don't come into Constantinople, the holy city, and do what you did. So for 900 years, this is going to be a problem. 
You took the city by force. It was the Christian holy city where the emperor resided and you sacked it. The crusaders divided up the territory around it into little empires and they ruled for some time, over a hundred years. The Latins ruled over these Greek Romans in the east. So even though the Byzantines would eventually retake it in 1261, so not quite a hundred years, I guess, but the Byzantine Empire remained weak because there's all this division, all this infighting. And what do you think is going to happen when they're weak? The Turks are going to look over there and say, hey, we've been waiting to take land from the Byzantines. Let us continue to fight and take what we can while they're weak. So this infighting of Christians is going to lead to Constantinople getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Even up until 2001, Pope John Paul II officially apologized to the Archbishop of Athens for Latin Christians sacking Constantinople in 1204. Also in 2004, he apologized to the Patriarch of Constantinople. So there's still this idea that the Roman Catholic Christians are to blame for that. And I guess, yeah, in 1204 they are. But now we have all this guilt of our fathers put upon us. So the Pope felt like he needed to apologize. And I'm sure he'll apologize. The next Pope will apologize and so on. Uh, So there's a painting of what's happened here. You have these dark, evil Latins coming in, black flags, and they're destroying and burning. And I'm sure they did a lot of that. Uh, But this is the idea of Christians slaughtering Christians. Suddenly that's a crusade. Let's just summarize the rest of the Crusades because you don't, you don't want a year-long course on Crusader history. Many other Crusades happened. In 1212, the Children's Crusade started. And so, hey, if we can't go with soldiers, maybe we'll just take a bunch of children to the Holy Land and that'll work. How do you think that's going to go? Supposedly 37,000 children, many orphans, of course, were gathered up along the way in France and Germany. They walked down and begged for food along the way. None of them really ever reached the Holy Land. They either went back home They died along the way. And many rumors, some scholars debate this, but there's many rumors that the children were enslaved in Egypt and North Africa. They got down to the port cities in Italy and along the coast. Muslim traders captured them or bought them as slaves. And then in the Muslim areas, they could sell Christians as slaves. And these young boys would grow up uh, to be household slaves. The Fifth Crusade, uh, the Fourth Lateran Council, a big council for the Roman Catholics, said we need to go on another crusade. So crusaders from Austria and and Hungary went. They were able to capture a city in Egypt, Damietta, in 1219. But they decided to attack Cairo, the capital. That didn't go so well. They were defeated by the new sultan now that Saladin has died, and they're forced to surrender. Sixth Crusade, a few years later, King Frederick of the Holy Roman Empire. So all the kings are trying to get in on this from uh, Western Europe. The Holy Roman Empire went on crusade. He ended up just making a treaty with the, Christ, uh, with the Muslim ruler. And it allowed Christians to rule over much of Jerusalem for a period of 10 years. So let's make a treaty. I'll take a part of Jerusalem and, and rule over it for 10 years. 1244, the Muslims were not happy with that. And so they retook that part of the city. Seventh Crusade, launched by Louis IX of France. He is responding to the conquest uh, that Jerusalem was completely lost again. And the Templars are scattered. So the aim of that crusade was to attack Egypt. They went down to Egypt. Complete failure. So now we're up to the seventh. Eighth Crusade, Louis IX again. He says, hey, I've got to do something for my name. I've got to make a name for myself. I've got all this money I'm just sitting here in France. Let's go on crusade. So he goes on crusade. He wants to bring military aid to the few crusaders left in Syria. The crusade gets diverted to North Africa because it's not going to work to go to Syria. So he says, where's the weakest part of the Muslim world? North Africa, Tunis, Tunisia. Let's go there. So they go down there. Louis IX died. The crusade ended. Ninth Crusade, now we got a king from England, Edward. He had been on crusade with Louis IX. And so he said, I want to go on crusade. I want to be famous. He goes on the Ninth Crusade. He doesn't gain any military ground. It proved to be a failure. And that was the last of the Christian crusades in the Middle East. From that point forward, crusades won't take place in the Middle East or the Holy Land. By 1291, 
Muslim forces had completely removed any crusader influence from the Middle East and North Africa. So about 200 years, the crusaders had land in the Middle East, in the Holy Land, we would say. Uh, 200 years, then by that point, the Muslims had pushed him out once again. Any gains made by the European Christians in the previous two centuries were finally lost. During this time, there was also a number of military expeditions around the Baltic Sea. So now the Crusades moved to the north and northeast, and they're coming from the German territories, the Holy Roman Empire. And so the Baltic Sea, where all these pagans still live, is conquered in the name of Crusade. And these Crusaders are known as the Northern Crusades. Those would last up until the 1500s, up until the Reformation period, the 16th century. So remember those Teutonic guys, those guys with all the armor on horses and they're slicing through the snow with their swords. They came from the Holy Roman Empire, which is the German um, area, is what we'd say Germany today. They go west because the Teutonic knights realize there's all these pagans and we'll go out there and we'll convert them by sword to Christianity and we'll rule over them. And if they don't convert to Christianity... We'll just massacre them or fight them in battle until they're uh, submissive to our rule. So here you see uh, Poland also gets into this a little bit as well. But you see Prussia there uh, along the Baltic Sea. Um, Modern day Livonia, Lithuania, Estonia. All of those get Christianized by the Teutonic Knights. Maybe there were some true you know, evangelistic uh, priests and preachers that would go. But much of this was done by sword and by fighting and, and slaughter. Think about it. you got pagans with sticks, bows, and arrows. And here come these guys with all plate mail in some cases or chain mail on horseback with swords and lances. It was not an equal battle at all. So let's talk about the Crusades. They get a lot of uh, negative light these days. Let's talk about the positives. The Muslims were advancing. They were going on jihad. They will continue to try to press now into Europe. And so at the least, the Crusades checked that. It took the battle to the heart of their land and did not allow them to continue to focus on Europe. It also delayed the fall of the Byzantine Empire until 1453. The Byzantine Empire was weak. That's why they asked for help in the First Crusade. They will continue to get weaker. Uh, they were very wealthy, but they could not maintain a very good army. The, the king, uh, the emperor kept hiring people to come and serve in his army. That didn't work so well. And so um, they eventually fell in 1453. So at least the crusades pushed that off a bit. Christians learned about many new things. Many technologies that come to Europe come from men who went on crusade and brought that back to their homeland. New foods, trades goods, technologies, they're going to bring back things like the windmill, a certain forms of irrigation or practice in the Middle East. Uh, the Christians had been divided up and separated after the Roman Empire fell, so they weren't communicating well with the Middle East. They go on crusade and learn about these things. They take them back to their homeland. Well, what about the negative? Well, there's no idea in Scripture about Christian holy war. The Old Testament has holy war. God says, come into the land, wipe out these people, take the land. It is not that way in the New Testament. The New Testament, the gospel goes out to Gentiles, and it does not say to the Gentiles, go and retake the holy land. Also, a love for relics increased greatly at this time. We have access to Jerusalem. We have access to the place that Jesus taught and Jesus lived. So let's go there and maybe we can come back with a relic. So many relics were supposedly transported back to Europe during this time. This brought a thriving industry to European Christian tourism. We have a relic. Remember the, the prince that Luther um, was protected by. He had a whole room of relics that you could pay to go see. And that was worth a lot of money. That was, that's like six flags down the road. All these hotels could be built around here. All of this tourist industry, sea worlds here. These are our relics in San Antonio. Well, that was 
uh, a reason to go on pilgrimage. You could not only tour the sites, but it was a spiritual thing. It made you a better Christian. So even writings like Canterbury Tales that uh, Chaucer wrote, that, that piece of literature is about people going on pilgrimage to Canterbury. And they're going to see the cathedral. They're going to see the uh, relics. And that makes you more holy. Here's the biggest issue, spiritually speaking. Indulgences were promoted. Now you've got indulgences that some man, the Pope, has said you can be forgiven of your sins if you go and fight. And that is big trouble. That's going to lead to Martin Luther coming up with his 95 theses and starting the Reformation. And uh, that becomes solidified even today. Indulgences are still in the Catholic Church. Now you, write, you, you light a candle instead of uh, going crusade. But there's still this concept of I can earn forgiveness. I can do something. So positives and negatives. Um, we would not say Christians today should go on crusade. But we can at least look back and say there were some positive things. Remember, the Muslims were attempting to come into Europe. They got as far as Vienna, Austria in the east. And in the west in the 800s, they got as far as France before they were checked there. And eventually the Spanish pushed them all the way out of Spain. Okay, well, let's get into the subject that you're all waiting to hear about. The monastery monasticism. Everybody wanted to be a monk when they were little, right? Live the quiet life. Go to the cave. Have nothing but a burlap sack. Have the ravens bring you food, right? It's it's the, the myth, the legend. And that's intentional. Early on, it is mysticized. It is um, mythological almost. How great and powerful and awesome you can be spiritually if you go and become a monk or later um, a nun. Now, this is one of the first monasteries. Um, I forget where this is, but this is very early uh, monastery here. And we want to look at what happened the cause of this rise, how popular it got in the Middle Ages, and why people are still loving it, wanting to be a monk. Now you have monks. Uh, they, they Somebody will have trouble in the middle of their life or whatever. They get a divorce and then they go join a monastery and their life turns around and then they write a book about it and they become popular and wealthy. Um, there are good and bad with monasteries, just like with the Crusades. There's a whole lot of bad, but there is a few, we'll just say providential ways that God worked during this time to help out the true faith. Let's see how this developed. Early monks did not start out in monasteries. They did not start out trying to live a perfect life or earn their salvation. Um, they said that they were modeling John the Baptist. They said they were modeling Jesus in the wilderness. They said they were modeling Jesus' teaching of sell your possessions. So the early monks, which get started around the 200s, is this idea that, too, especially in the 300s when the Christian religion gets accepted by the Roman Empire, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of wealth. And wealthy people feel guilty over their sins. And they say, the way to solve this is to give up our possessions and go live out in the wilderness. Now, that really only happens with a few people in the early period. Most of the wealthy people say, I'm giving my possessions to the church. My house, my estate, I give that to the church. But I'm the new um, guy that runs this monastery. I'm going to bring in my own monks. I'm still going to have them work the fields where my peasants and slaves used to. So it really wasn't completely walking away from your property. It was turning it over to the church and then becoming a monk and running the monastery. Many of these wealthy men, they did not give up marriage in the early part of the monastic period. They just said, I'm not going to have sexual relations with my wife we're going to live holy, uh, they would say, in our house, just like we used to, sleeping in the same bed, and everyone will look at us as very pious. I'll leave that to you to decide if they accomplish those things. But much of this was an attempt to look more holy, more godly, to atone for some sin in your life. 
You're in a Christian society now. You feel the guilt and shame of sin. What do you do with that if you're wealthy? The word monk comes from the Latin word monus, to live alone. So that's where the word comes from. And the earliest form, they're really not the wealthy people who just turn their land to the church and continue to live there, but the ones who went out in the wilderness, they were eremitical monks, part of eremitical monastism. The word hermit comes from this. These were hermit monks. So there's two branches that start early. One of those is the hermit. Go live alone in isolation. Usually you got to go to the desert because that's the that's where Jesus went. And you're out on the edge of the wilderness and you might live in an abandoned shelter, an old shack, a shepherd's hut, some building out in the middle of nowhere. That's how it starts early on. These are the holy men that even people like Athanasius wrote about. St. Anthony. We all need to be like St. Anthony. He went out and lived alone in the wilderness, just trusting in the Lord, being alone with God. So here he is, 251 to 356. He seeks to perfect his calling by living alone out in the desert. And he says, I'm following John the Baptist. I'm following Jesus in that. And he really starts the monastic movement. He's probably not the very first monk, but he's the guy that is made popular by Athanasius' biography on him. He moves out into the desert near Alexandria, Egypt. And Athanasius discovers him, writes a biography on him, sends it back to Rome. It becomes very popular, his life does, in this period. So for 13 years, he fasts, he had visitors come out, he gave them wisdom. He's sort of like the uh, desert holy man, you know. He's the guy you go out to in the desert to find. Just like George Lucas stole all these ideas and he puts them into a movie, right? You always got to go to the desert planet, go find the guy in the cave, and he has all the wisdom. So for 13 years, that's his first trial. Then he takes a break. And his second trial, he's locked in an old abandoned Roman fort building for 20 years. He's put in a bare cell. And this was supposedly uh, granted God's favor to him. And he could resist the devil. So now the idea is, let's not be out in the elements, but let's be in a closed area where that's all we live in. We have a little rug or a piece of covering for our bed. And that's it. Now, this gets picked up, and even today, monks still live in a bare cell. They might have a cot or a bed, and that's it. So this is a famous painting, supposedly, of him. Here here he is. He's out in the desert. He's got this golden halo around his head. St. Anthony, very famous. I'm not sure what he's doing with the rabbit and the deer. but So from that, the, the Syrians take it to a new level. They say, let's not just go out to the desert. We can do better than that. The holy life is really removing yourself. Let's build a pillar or find an old one that's from an abandoned Roman building, something that is falling apart. And let's go to the top of the pillar and live up there. So here's St. Simeon. These guys are called stylites because they live atop of a style, a a pillar, a, a support from an old building. And they just camp out up there. And so here's an old style here, an old pillar Uh, It looks like a little tower, and they would just live up there, and people would have to bring them food and water, and they would throw their refuse off the side on the ground. People would come out and talk to them. Here's a painting, a couple of guys up there just hanging out, and uh, you go and see them, you know, bring your baby to be blessed from... It's sort of like something out of Lord of the Rings, right? You got the two towers and these wizards up there. You wonder where that idea comes from. Well, something like that really happened. And these people were seen as super holy. These are super Christians up here on top of the pillar, living so the whole world could see that they're holy men. This is probably more realistic here. Here's a guy, he's got an iron collar around his um, his neck there, and he's got a little basket he can go up and down to get food with. So these early aeromedical monks were called the athletes of God. That's what they were called by early Christians. These are the ones that are really striving for God. They've given up marriage. They've given up property. They've given up the good things for God. And they believe that sanctification was increased by abstaining from all these things and just giving them all to God. Give your whole life to God and go live in a cave, in an abandoned property, at the top of a pole, and you will be holy. Now, not all Christian monks are like this. This is the movement that's really gaining momentum. Augustine becomes a monk when he's saved and goes back to North Africa. 
But he starts more of what we might call a seminary, where a young man can come in and get trained for ministry. And his house turns into sort of a, a monastery for training men on how to become priests or preachers and pastors. So it's not as if all of them were living like this, but this becomes the ultimate. If you want to be a true Olympic athlete for God, you do things like this. Now there's another branch of monks starting out here. The Cenobite monks. Now this from uh, the Greek word koinos and bios, two Greek words which mean common life. So this is typically what we're familiar with when we think of monks today in a monastery. Not living alone, but joining together in a community. Monks living in a community together, separate from the world, but working together for a common goal. So there's two ways to become more holy and get rid of sin in your life. As a monk at this time, are two main ways, two popular ways. Go live by yourself, because there's no sin there, right? You're by yourself. Is there any sin when you're by yourself? Yeah. Or live with other holy monks. There can't be any sin there, right? Just separate yourself from the world. That's started by this guy, Pacomius. Pacomius. He looks a little bit uh, more serious even than St. Anthony. Pacomius here is a Roman pagan soldier when he gets saved. Um, He's taken care of by Christians in Egypt. And he says, this Christianity thing is pretty awesome. I'm going to dedicate my life to that. And supposedly he heard a voice that told him, don't go live in isolation like the other monks, but build a community. If you want to start something new, you just hear from God and nobody can argue with you, right? Build a community where many monks can live together. So he starts what's called the Cenobite monasticism. The monastery he starts is Tabina. The Tabina monastery is built in 318 to 323. And it's focused on monks living in cells and cell clusters. So you would have your own little room and that's your cell. It's not a jail cell where there's bars or anything. But you live in your cell, and then you come out to eat, and you come out to work. But you've removed all the things of the world from your living space. About a hundred monks came there to live in that monastery, or in caves near the monastery. Pacomius was called Abba, which means father. This is where we get the word abbot in English. Eventually, every leader of a monastery is going to be called the abbot, or the the leader of the, the convent, the nunnery is called an abbess. And that comes from the idea of father. I'm not sure abbess. That's like father, mother. Doesn't really work. But uh, So here's St. Anthony in the desert. We talked about him. He's way out there, but the Tabina Monastery is very much south in Egypt, um, way up the Nile River. And you can see the idea is to go away from civilization, go to the desert, and live a holy life. Well, there's a monk in Italy who says it would be a great idea if we could bring this concept from Egypt more into Europe. There's people who want to be monks, and it started to already come into the area. But Benedict takes it to another level. He wants to make it more organized, get more serious. Yeah, it's great to be a monk, but what do you do with your day? How do you organize your day? How do you order your day? What are you supposed to do to continue growing and being more godly as a monk? So Benedict, a little bit about him. Most of what we know comes from Gregory the Great. We met Gregory the Great earlier in this course. He's one of the early popes. And uh, he writes on Benedict. And he tells us that he was an Italian from an area called Nursia. His early years he studied in Rome. And then he retreated to Campania, the area around the country around Rome. There he met some monks and lived with them. And his zeal for monasticism was too much for them. And they tried to poison him. That's pretty bad if the monks try to poison you, right? You're too much for us, Benedict. and You need to get out of here. Because there's no sin in there, so I don't know where the poison came from because the monks don't sin. But So he left, and he goes to a new area, Monte Cassino. And he said, look, my desire is to save the world, not simply to remove people from society, but to remove themselves so that they can save the world from itself by various tasks. So... We're not just going to go live out there and and continue on. We're going to retreat into the monastery in the country. And we're going to build a Christian society that we can then take back out into the world. There's a very popular book that came out a few years ago that brings this idea to the modern world. It's called The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option. Very familiar. I forget the author, but he's a conservative writer. And he says, basically, right now our culture is becoming very pagan. 
we need to remove ourselves as Christians and sort of, I'm just summarizing, but he's saying we're going to build up the Christian culture and society within Christianity, and then we can open it back up to the world. But you would still get uh, approval from your local highest authority to, to do an official monastery. So this guy's in Italy. He's going to go to the Pope eventually, or the Pope will have to at some point give him that authority. But it wasn't like you had to have it to get started. It was just go and have fun. If it works out, I'll bless you later. And uh, eventually, though, in the Middle Ages, you're going to need authority from the Pope to start a new organization. So Benedict came up with a rule, and this is still the rule for most monasteries, or the regula in Latin. Huge impact on monasticism in Western Christianity. He wrote 73 chapters in a book. There was a prologue, seven chapters on how to live as an ascetic. That means denying all the pleasures, denying you know, a lot of the good food. The kind of the bread and water, live in a, a, a bare cell and work all day. Uh, 65 chapters were on practical matters. But the thing about the rule, even though it doesn't sound flexible, is it was very flexible and broad. It could be applied to any culture, anywhere. So this scene takes off. It goes all over the place to monasteries that were already existing and, and new monasteries. And it really focused on the monk's life of praying and laboring. That was not Augustine. He studied. He taught men to study. His monastery was different. But Benedict focuses on two things. We're going to pray and we're going to work because we've got to eat. And then sooner or later, they have enough produce to start selling to the little villages and communities and so on. They become very wealthy. But originally, it's just, let's just pray and work. Praying and working. That's the monkish life. Praying and working. Praying and working. So he's the guy who came up with the canonical hours. Matins, uh, if I'm pronouncing this right. I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. But Matins is the middle of the night. You've got to wake up and pray for two hours. So all you that wanted to be monks when you were younger, this is what you would need to do. You pray from 2 to 4 a.m. Then you get back up at 6 and you pray. Uh, you might have a, a short service there later in the monastic life. Prime is mid-morning. That's where you have praying hours again. Terse, sex, nones. That's uh, basically around lunchtime. You're going to pray, gather and pray again. They're going to pray and offer prayers at Vespers at dusk. Compline, the end of the workday. And then again at bedtime. So it's all about working and praying, working and praying. Uh, there's sort of the idea with the wheel there on the right. You've got the different areas of the day. Yeah, the monk is, is there. He's copying the scriptures and illuminating books and such. But he better make sure all those periods he stops and goes to prayer. And then here's the guy on the left here leading that. They would also sing. They would uh, have some scripture reading. The, the abbot might say a few words from the Bible. So then comes a more famous monk. Now we're up to the crusader period, which we left off when we moved from the crusades. We have Bernard of Clairvaux, and Bernard has some good theology, a lot of bad theology, but he's important enough we need to mention him. He's a Cistercian monk, so by now there's different types of monks, and he's of the Cistercian order. That was formed in 1098. Uh, they're later uh, called Bernardines or white monks because of the clothing they wore. The key for them is to return to a literal observance of the rule of Benedict. So from the time of Benedict in the 400s to 1090, guess what happens? Corruption. Church becomes wealthy. Church has, the monasteries have money. They have power. They have fame. Things are, have gotten off track according to them. So Bernard and the Cistercians are going to bring it back into order. They reject some of the developments that the Benedictine monasteries had undergone. The monks tried to live monastic life as it had been way back when, before all the money came into the church. The most striking feature in this reform was we got to go back to manual labor, especially agricultural work. Yeah, it's nice you guys are copying books and Bible and manuscripts. And you're doing all these great and wonderful things. But let's get our hands dirty again. Let's be real men in the field. Uh, let's go out and work in the field like we should. So Bernard was French. He comes from a noble family. He's one of the greatest champions of the monastic life in what's called the high Middle Ages, the high point of the Middle Ages. He's the driving force behind all this reform happen, happening with the Cistercian monks. But he despised scholasticism. This idea where we just sit around and debate and talk 
and, and argue what the philosophers said versus what the Bible said. He despised that. And so he, he's a fierce opponent against Peter Abelard, who's one of the first monks to write a systematic theology. Peter Abelard. He wrote a systematic theology. Bernard says that's, that's not what we're about. We've got to go out and we've got to get our hands dirty. We've got to work like men and pray. Working and praying. Let's get back to Benedict. So he becomes the abbot of the monastery in Clairvaux. During his leadership, the monks at Clairvaux created over 68 Cistercian monasteries. So this thing spreads like wildfire just during his life. The Pope commissions Bernard to preach for the Second Crusade. Remember I said it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Bernard helping the kings get military might to go on crusade. And his cousin is the one who founded the Templar Order. So this guy is well known, well known during the high Middle Ages, and he's got his hand in quite a few things happening. Here's the center of his theology. It's all about love. It's all about love. And he said, we need to meditate. We need to meditate and reflect on the work of Christ. So nowadays, meditation is huge, contemplative prayer in the Catholic tradition, now in Anglicanism. But the monks in the Middle Ages said, it's not just working and praying, but we need to just meditate. Not on Scripture, but just meditate. So piety and spirituality uh, were to focus on, let's meditate on what Christ has done. Which in itself doesn't sound bad, but without Scripture, what are you actually doing in this time period of meditation? They were reflecting on Augustine's writings. They wrote books on them. One of John Calvin's favorite church doctors is Bernard of Clairvaux. So it's not like Bernard said everything wrong. Calvin quotes him often in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. So this great reformer still points back to Bernard and says, this guy got a few things right. You Roman Catholics should listen to one of your own from the Middle Ages. He also wrote many, head, uh, many hymns, including, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded which we don't sing a lot here, but it's still sung in many churches. So let's talk about scholasticism for a second, uh, because I'm sure that's the big question in your mind after mentioning it, right? What is scholasticism? Scholasticism means of the school. It's all about academics. It's all about debating and arguing in the academic realm. It's the primary form of education in the late medieval period. Most of the reformers are trained in scholasticism. It will continue even past the Reformation, into the 16 and 1700s. It began as an effort, though, to explain how Christian theology and Greek philosophy can be reconciled. So you've got these guys out in the field, and they're meditating and praying. But then you've got the guys in the, in the seminaries and the priesthood, and they are writing books. They are discovering old writings of Aristotle that have been lost for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now they've come back into print, how do we fit what these philosophers said with Christianity? We're sort of back to the early church, aren't we? Remember the early church? Christians were struggling with Greek philosophy and Christianity. How do they work? And so that becomes the main, objection, uh, the main objective of scholastics is to answer these questions, resolve the contradictions. If there's a natural theology out there that God gave even the Greek philosophers, it must fit with Scripture. So let's make those fit together. So this goes back to Charlemagne. Remember, he started a renaissance where he said, we're a bunch of uh, backwoods Latin Christians. We need to relearn Latin, relearn how the Latins do it in Rome for the church service. And we need to write and publish books on that. So that starts what's called scholasticism. Um, I'll just go real quick through this one. Uh, many Greek words, such as the Greek church fathers, uh, Greek works, such as the Greek church fathers, were translated and began to influence Western thinking. So now we have people running from the Muslims in the East, and they're bringing these Greek works to the West. And that's intersecting with scholasticism. Then there's two new orders of the Catholic Church that start. The Franciscan monks, named after Francis of Assisi, they're going to focus on the writings of Plato. We've got to get Plato back in print. We've got to make sure he's uh, integrated with the Christian theology. Then the Dominicans started and they said, no, we have to make sure Aristotle gets in print and gets integrated into Christian theology. So that brings us up. We'll stop with this guy when I'm done here. Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm said, it's not about philosophy. That's ridiculous. It's not about the monkish life. It's about meditating on the word and thinking logically. 
which sounds much better than what had been said previous. So Anselm's going to come up with some important things uh, that had been lost through the Middle Ages. He's going to bring them back into the forefront. He's born in 1033, grows up in Upper Burgundy, France. He waited until later in life to join the monastery because his father wouldn't allow it. But then his father dies. At 27, he sells the family estate. He has all this money, gives it to the church, took vows. He starts out in Beck, Normandy. He starts out there. He um, becomes the abbot of Beck after a while when the founder of the monastery dies. Then a Norman, a northern French um, noble wants to go conquer England. His name's William. Later we call him William the Conqueror. He says, that's my land by right. The kingdom of England is mine. And so he's going to take an army and go across the English Channel and conquer these English folks, which he does. And Anselm then gets transported across and asked to be the new, not just abbot, not just bishop, but archbishop of all of the Roman Catholic diocese in England. So we'll, we'll pick up here next week because Anselm has some good theology. Remember, all these guys aren't just the most wicked, evil theologians in the world. Many of them come up with some good concepts of good theology. It's not so easy to say there were no true Christians during this period. There had to be because it got passed on from generation to generation, true Christianity. It's more of a big mix of good and bad. And you've got to sift through and, and find the good because there's a lot of bad. So Anselm has some great uh, theological concepts we'll come back to uh, next week. So uh, let's pray and then we'll finish this class. Lord, thank you so much. You are indeed uh, persevering us today as you wanted all Christians through the Middle Ages. It was a dark period, but there were some burning lights. And even the reformers recognized this. Help us to see that we should be thankful that the true gospel was preserved in this time and brought more to the forefront during the Reformation period. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to become good students of church history. In the name of our Lord, amen.